Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. False teachers are abundant. And if you think that's bad, the followers of false teachers are more abundant. For every false teacher, there are hundreds and thousands of gullible disciples. Now, what do you do with that? Uh, Let me ask some just very simple, practical questions. What are the consequences of following a false teacher? Well, there could be many. And perhaps we should ask, could a believer in Jesus Christ follow a false teacher? Those are just some of the questions that I think Peter answers when he discusses false teachers in the second chapter of his second epistle. So will you join me as we look at 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. 2 Peter 2.18. I might point out that in verse 17, he says that false teachers are wells without water, clouds carried about by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. These are unsaved teachers that are wells without water. They refresh nobody. They are clouds that are carried away by the wind, so they don't benefit anybody either. And then he says in verse 18, for, and as you've heard me say many times, when that little word appears in the New Testament, At the beginning of a sentence, it's about to explain what he's just said. So he says in verse 18, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the corruption of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome the latter worse for them than the beginning. For It would be better for them had they not known the way of righteousness than they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But as that had happened, according to a true proverb, a dog returns to its vomit, and a sow having washed of her wallowings in mud, in the mire. Now, This is the last paragraph in a chapter that deals with false prophets, false teachers, I should say. In this passage, what Peter does is he begins by describing their preaching, which is kind of interesting. 
What does the preaching of a false teacher sound like? Then he describes very briefly their person. And finally, he talks about what they produce. So that's sort of the outline we're going to hang our thoughts on this morning. But let's go back and begin at verse 18 and just look at their preaching. Verse 18 says, They speak great swelling words of emptiness. And this is an explanation of verse 17, where they were wells without water and clouds without rain. In other words, they are speaking these great swelling words, but just like a well without water, they're empty. Just like a cloud without rain, those words have no meaningful significance. They speak but what they say has no content. Matter of fact, he calls it, I think this is interesting, great swelling words. And that little expression is actually the translation of a single Greek word, which means excess, in size. In other words, they use big words. Now, I thought that was just very, very interesting. I remember as a young Christian hearing somebody say that a preacher ought to put the cookies on the lower shelf, that you ought to speak in simple, plain language so that people could understand what you're saying. Conversely, there are preachers who like to use big words. And Peter says that's one of the characteristics of a false teacher. They like to use big, swelling words. One author has said... A clever way to confuse people is to use words which no one understands. True scholars do not resort to such tactics. Rather, they explain in simple terms that which is difficult. Now, I think that is uh, really an apt observation, that some preachers have the ability to make complicated things simple. That's what we ought to be doing. And others have the ability to make simple things complicated. Not all preachers that do that are false teachers, but false teachers do that, according to the Apostle Peter, that they speak with big words, and that does not communicate simple truth. Their big words, according to Peter, are empty words. They're like a big balloon. They look impressive, but they are full only of air. They are empty barrels. And as they used to say where I come from, it's the empty barrel that makes the noise. So they make great noise with big words, but they are not really saying anything. Abraham Lincoln, as you know, debated Stephen Douglas, and he remarked once, my opponent reminds me of a boat on the Mississippi, which has a six-foot boiler and an eight-foot whistle, making a lot of noise. I remember once, some years ago, a professor I had happened to hear a sermon by somebody that was theological liberal. And in a private conversation, he said to me, liberals have a way of saying nothing beautifully. 
And that, I think, is the kind of thing that Peter is talking about. Just listen to the way they preach. Some preachers are funny. When you hear them, you laugh. And after one, afterward, you wonder what you learned. Some preachers are clever. You hear them and you're captivated. But what they say is empty. And you walk away thinking, what did he say? You ever had that experience? Boy, I have. I've listened to some and thought, what in the world is he talking about? All right, not to commit that error, I want to make it very clear. I'm talking about false teachers who speak big words and say nothing of any spiritual significance. That is what that verse is saying. Now, what is the content of those big words? What are they doing to elude people? Well, he says that in the latter part of verse 18. They allure through the lust of the flesh, through licentiousness. Wow. The word translated allure here is the same one that's translated beguiling back in verse 14. And the idea is they bait people. They're, with these empty words, with these big words, they are baiting people. And the bait seems to be in the area of licentiousness which is translated in chapter 2, verse 7, as filthy conduct, and probably refers to immorality, sexual immorality. Now, this is, I think, critical. Look very carefully at verse 19 for a second. Where they promise them liberty, stop. That is what they're doing. With these big, empty words, they are promising liberty. Now, we'll get back to verse 19 in a second. But the point of the latter part of verse 18 says that they bait people through these words, promising them liberty, but to the ones who've actually escaped from those who live in error. Now, it's important that you carefully observe what's going on here. We're talking about false teachers, but in the latter part of verse 18, he's talking about believers. The point is that false teachers can bait believers because he says they bait those who have actually escaped from those who live in error. Those who have escaped from those who live in error are, of course, genuine believers. So here's what's going on, apparently. They are saying in their preaching, look, I promise you liberty, but people who are actually believers hear that and they follow those false teachers, and we'll discuss the consequences of that in a bit, but the point at this juncture is that they are being baited and they are following the false teachers. Now, I think there are indications in this passage and the parallel passage in the book of Jude that these people were perverting the doctrine of grace, uh, that apparently they were using grace to say somehow that it's okay to sin. Now, that idea is in several places in the New Testament. Remember Romans 6, 
where Paul says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he says in the old King James, God forbid. Or in the new King James, certainly not. Well, I think that that's a hint as to what was going on in some cases in New Testament churches, in New Testament times. That is, that they were somehow using grace to say, well, God forgives you, so I guess it doesn't matter. And, or something like, well, go ahead and sin, and God can exercise grace and forgive you, and actually using the doctrine of grace to permit sin. Now, that seems to be what's going on in Romans 6.1 and in the book of Jude, verse 4, and perhaps even in this passage as well. The two are parallel. Now, before I go on, I want to stop and make something very clear. How do we get saved? By grace through faith. Jesus died for the pay for the sin of the world. That means yours is included, and so is mine. He arose from the dead, and those who trust in Jesus Christ are freely given. That's grace, right? Now, we all know that verse, but we ought to combine with it Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 says that the grace that brings salvation, I just mentioned that, it's in Ephesians 2. The grace that brings salvation teaches us to deny ungodliness and unrighteousness, ungodliness, and to live godly. So the true grace of God, which Peter speaks about, is that we're saved by grace, and that ought to motivate us to live by grace and to deny ungodliness and to live godly lives. These false teachers were perverting that doctrine of grace and somehow using grace to permit sin. One author said, the purpose of life is not to find your freedom, but to find your master. So they are promising freedom, but that freedom, as he will explain in a minute, leads to bondage, not freedom. Or as another has said, just as a gifted musician finds freedom and fulfillment, putting himself or herself under the discipline of a great artist or athlete under the discipline of a great coach, so believers find true freedom and fulfillment under the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what's going on. They're promising freedom. And whatever they're promising, with empty words, using big words, leads to bondage. True freedom comes through discipline, not through license. When I was a little kid, I lived on the other side of the tracks. Uh, my mother and father, as you've heard me say, were divorced. I lived with my mother. We rented a house. The landlord who owned the house taught piano lessons. And she took a shine to me and decided to give me free piano lessons. Now, I hated piano lessons because I didn't have enough time to play. 
I didn't want to play the piano. I wanted to play with the ball. So I complained. And my father said, oh, don't make him do that. He wasn't anywhere around, but from long distance he said, don't make him do that. So my mother didn't make me play piano. Till this day, I cannot play the piano. I had freedom, but what did it lead to? I had freedom not to discipline myself to play the piano, and now I can't play the piano. How do you have freedom on a keyboard? Discipline. Right? right? That's what's going on here. These false teachers are not teaching discipline. They're teaching freedom that becomes license. So Peter says, in essence, just listen to their preaching. Now, in the latter verse 18, as I mentioned a minute ago, he says he's preaching to those who have escaped from those who live in error. This message of freedom is being given to those who are believers. They're the ones who have escaped. As a matter of fact, uh, where he says they have escaped through those who live in error has been referred to back in chapter 1, verse 4. You need to look at that. He says, By which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So he clearly identifies believers as those who have escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. Now he's referring to those people in chapter 2, verse 18, where he says those who've actually escaped from those who live in error. Same thing as chapter 1, verse 4. So the preaching of the false teachers is to believers who have actually escaped this corruption, and now they're being taught by the false teachers to go back in it. So uh, they have trusted Christ, this group. They have escaped perhaps the pollution of the pagans who live in error, and now they're listening to these false teachers. So Peter's picture is graphic. False teachers using big, empty words as a fishing line, using the, to the lust of the flesh, especially immorality, to bait and catch believers. That's what's going on. A man once described going down the street seeing a number of pigs trailing behind a farmer. This excited his curiosity so much that he determined where the procession would end. To my surprise, he said, I saw the pigs following the man right into the slaughterhouse. And I said to him later, how did you get the pigs to come behind you that way? And he replied, I had a basket of beans under my arm, and I dropped some of them as I went along. They followed me just for a few goodies. And so it is, he said, that Satan has the beans of pleasure, lust, and innumerable other sins in his basket. And by means he persuades multitudes 
to follow in his ways to lead to the slaughterhouse. That false teachers give you little beans and you bite and you follow with ending up with dire consequences, which we'll get to in a minute. All right, how are we doing? So far, so good? We got two characters in this story, the false teacher and genuine believers. So a believer can listen to a false teacher. You agree? All right. How do you disagree with this passage? Uh, Have a little experience. You'll figure that out real quick, right? All right, the next thing Peter does is instead of talking about their preaching, he talks about their person. Look at verse 19. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. Now, I've already commented on the fact that they promised liberty. That's part of their preaching. What I want to talk about now is their personal life. They are slaves to corruption. But before I comment on that, I want to point out something that is very, very important. If you're awake, if you're, I mean, if you're asleep, wake up. If you're dozing off, nudge somebody. This is important. To understand what's going to happen next, you need to understand what I'm about to say. Verse 19 could be called, and has been called, a parenthesis. And what I mean by that is that he's going to talk about the the individual's false teachers, and he's going to go right back talking about believers. And that is important. So, he says, at the end of verse 18, those who actually escape from those who live in error. Then, uh, he says, in verse 20, For if after they have escaped the pollution of the world. Did you see the connection? Verse 18 says, they escaped. Verse 20 says, they escaped. So verse 19 is a parenthesis. Uh, He says something about the false teachers before he goes back to talking about believers. So, let's talk about the personhood, the individual lives of the false teachers. He says, they themselves are slaves of corruption. Now that's interesting because the first part of the verse says what they're preaching is freedom. Their battle cry is liberty. They repeatedly, constantly proclaim the promise of liberty and freedom. But in the meantime, they themselves are slaves of corruption. They claim to be the servants of God, but they end up being the servants of sin. They promise something that they themselves do not possess. They talk about liberty, and they walk in slavery. The bondage is the slavery of corruption. The word corruption means decay or destruction. There is no liberty in the lust of the flesh. There is only bondage and decay and destruction. But the point is... They are preaching liberty, but they're slaves. They're preaching freedom, but they personally don't have it. This is like listening to a 300-pound man convince you to buy his diet plan. 
or a bald-headed man trying to convince you to buy his lotion that'll grow hair. They are peddling something they do not possess. Rather, he says in the latter part of verse 19, by whom a person is overcome, by him also is brought into bondage. So they themselves are slaves. They themselves have been overcome. Now, if we had time to do this, we could go through this uh, passage and notice the kinds of things that um, they had been overcome by and were slaves to. They were slaves to money. That's mentioned earlier in the chapter in verse 3 and verse 14. They were slaves to fleshly lust. That's mentioned in verse 10 and in verse 14. And I think we could say they were slaves to pride which is mentioned in verses 10 through 14. So the point is, they're preaching liberty, but personally, they're in bondage to sin. They're slaves to money. They're slaves to the lust of the flesh. They're slaves to pride. They don't have freedom themselves. They're servants and slaves of sin. But ah, the second actor in this story is the believer. So what he does, beginning in verse 20, is go back and talk about the believer. Look at verse 20. He says, For if they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. Now, Every once in a while, we bump into a verse and I say, hmm, this is a little bit of a challenge. Well, this is one of those verses. There are two interpretations of this verse. One interpretation is that it's talking about the false teachers. The second interpretation is that it's talking about the same people that are mentioned in verse 18. Now, there's no doubt that verse 18 is talking about believers. They escaped and that's the description given to them in chapter 1, verse 4. So there's no question about 18. Well, there's no question that verse 20 is also talking about verse 18, which is talking about chapter 1, verse 4. Did you follow all of that? Let me give it to you again. 1, 4 is talking about believers. The same description is used in 2, 18, so therefore it's talking about believers. The same description is used in 2, 20, therefore it's talking about believers. You get the point? The point is, verse 20 is talking about believers. Now, I say that for two reasons. One is that he says they escaped, and that's the, free, the phrase that's used in 1.4 and 2.18. The second reason I think verse 20 is talking about a believer is because they have the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, that's an interesting little phrase. It only appears twice in this epistle. The other time is chapter 3, verse 18, where it says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no question, but that to have the knowledge of Jesus Christ isn't just to know about him, it's to know him, as 3.18 demonstrates. So chapter 2, verse 20, is talking about believers. They have a true knowledge of Jesus Christ. Just look at 3.18. But here's the problem. The problem 
is the last two clauses in verse 20. For if they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. Oh boy, what does that mean? Well, to be again entangled is to be entangled again in the pollution of the world. That word is entangled is only used twice in all of the New Testament. And the other case is 2 Timothy 2.4, and there it's clearly talking about a believer. So, this verse is saying a believer can be involved and entangled and overcome by the wickedness of the world. Wow. You agree with that? You think a believer can be overcome by the world? Can a believer be worldly? Maybe that's why Paul said, be not conformed to this world, Romans 12, 2, right? Why did he have to command us to do that? Because we can do that. If you want to see a great description of what it's like to be worldly in a biblical sense, look at James chapter 4. Now, they can be entangled again in that corruption of the world. They can be overcome by the corruption that is in the world. And Peter's point is that you should not be overcome. You should be an overcomer. These people are victims of the false teachers when they should be victors by listening to the true grace of God. All right. The people who are listening the believers, those are the folks I'm really interested in. That's essence. They can listen to a false teacher and wander into sin because they're listening to a false teacher. That's bad. But it gets worse. Look at the latter part of verse 20. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Now, now, that thing is so strong that many Bible teachers come to it and say, well, that's got to refer to false teachers. It couldn't possibly refer to a believer. But clearly, verse 20 is talking to believers. Can a believer be worse off in the end than in the beginning? I think we need to define the beginning and the end. I think... Uh, in the context, he's talking about the beginning of listening to the false teacher. So could the end of listening to a false teacher be worse than the beginning? Yeah, that's the point. I really think this is an echo of what Jesus said in Luke 19. What Jesus taught in Luke 19 was this. He said a demon could be cast out and go to some other place and decides he wants to go back where he came from. And a really fascinating passage. And the demon comes back and sees that the house he used to live in, meaning the person, is clean, it's been swept, and it's in order. And so he goes and brings seven other demons. 
So the person ends up worse at the end than they were at the beginning. Whoa! That's what Jesus teaches. Luke 19, verses 24 to 26, as I recall. All right? I think Peter is simply echoing what he heard Jesus teach. That there are cases where a person can be spiritually and morally in worse condition than they were when they began to listen to a false teacher. By following false teachers, believers can end up worse spiritually and morally than they were when they began to listen to that false teacher. In the context, that's what he's talking about. It's the beginning and the end of listening to a false teacher. Now, let me make something real clear. I do not think this passage is talking about somebody's eternal destiny. Uh, you know very well that I firmly believe that if you trust Jesus Christ, you're sealed by the Spirit of God, and you can't lose that. Uh, one of my favorite verses on that subject is John 5, 24. Uh, if you believe in him, you have passed from death unto life and shall not come into judgment. So this is not talking about the end being some kind of eternal destiny. I think the end is listening to a false teacher. The beginning is beginning to listening to a false teacher. So if you listen to a false teacher who are themselves slaves to sin, they're going to justify their lifestyle. Then if you listen to them and follow them, then you're in danger of becoming again entangled by the sin that entangled them, because that's what they are teaching. So, Peter says in verse 21, For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and turned from the holy commandment delivered to them. Now, those who interpret this passage to say that it's still talking about unbelieving false teachers use this verse to support their view. But I think a careful analysis of this view indicates he's still talking about believers. It begins with the word for. He's still explaining believers. And he says, they did not know, I'm sorry, they did not know, for they had been better off had they not known, the way of righteousness. It didn't say they knew the Lord. It's they knew the way of righteousness. And the implication is, followed it. And so it says, they turned from the holy commandment. The little Greek word translated from implies that they were once following the holy commandment, and then all of a sudden, they decided not to. So they knew and were in the road of righteousness. And because they listened to a false teacher, they got out of the road of righteousness, and now they're committing a sin. They're living in sin, some sin they shouldn't be committed. So they used to know the way of righteousness. They used to know the way. They used to walk in it. But by listening to false teachers, they got back into bondage. Now that 
is what can happen if you listen to a false teacher. Some have suggested that the idea is you're worse off, which is clearly being taught, you're worse off, verse 20, you're worse off because you feel the guilt. You're worse off because you're in more misery. You're worse off because you're not in the way of righteousness. So Peter concludes in verse 22 by saying, But it happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having worked uh, to her wallowing in the mire. Now there are two proverbs to end this passage. One is in the book of Proverbs, 2611, and the other is not, but both are Proverbs. What do they mean? Well, he says, a dog returns to his own vomit. Now some will pounce on the fact that it's a dog, not a sheep, but I think that's missing the point of the proverb. The point is that it's the dog that returns to his vomit. I used to have a dog. I don't anymore, so... I need a dog lover to help me here. But from what I understand, a dog can uh, uh, give up all the contents of its stomach, and then what will he do? Go back and smell it? Even eat it? There's a dog lover talking. Three of them. I got in the mouth of two or three witnesses. What do you say? All right. right, the dog will go back to the vomit. That's all he's saying. And his point is that that's an illustration of the fact that a believer listening to a false teacher can go back to bondage. And the same thing of a pig. You wash, and I know it's a pig, not a lamb, but that's missing the point. The point is it's returning. That's the issue. And so here's this pig, and you take the pig, built wallowing in the mud, and you take it and hose it down and wash it, and what's the pig going to do? Go right back to the mud. And that's an illustration of what happens to a believer who is listening to a false teacher who is teaching that you can sin and get away with it. So here's the question. Can a Christian act like a fool? That's the point of the book of Proverbs. And I mean do the same stupid, foolish thing over and over and over and over again. Some of you look guilty. They haven't had somebody raise their hand. All right. I might ought to raise mine. All right. That's true. That's true. Believers can do stupid stuff. Now, I want to sum all this up, and I want to make a suggestion or two. If I were going to try to put this whole passage together, I would say, false Teachers preach empty words, appealing to the flesh, promising liberty, but they themselves are in bondage, and believers who follow them are worse off than they were when they started listening to the false teacher. So what's the bottom line for us? Hello. Be careful of what you listen to. That's the point. False teachers do not leave you better off. They leave you worse off. When Ronald Reagan was running for president, he had a slogan. Are you better off than you were four years ago? 
That'd be a great thing to say to somebody listening to a false teacher. You better off uh, now than you were before you listened to that false teacher. Peter would say, no, you're not. All right. I think it's curious that there's not a lot of application in this passage to us directly. As I was looking at it again, uh, that struck me. And I think part of the reason for that may be back in verse 1 where he says, there were false prophets among the people, even so there will be false teachers. Uh, This is a prophecy, so he's predicting that false teachers are coming. And so I don't think he makes any direct application to them. However, I'm going to make one. I'm sure Peter would agree with it, because I'm going to tell you what Paul said in this case. And what I'm about to say is very important. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And look at verse 21. Paul says, Test all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Would you look at that? I have another three-point sermon just waiting for me. Look at that. Three points all laid out for me. Now, the context of this passage is being in church and watching the exercise of spiritual gifts. And so he says, uh, don't quench the spirit, meaning don't quench the use of spiritual gifts, and don't despise prophecies. That's in verses 19 and 20. But as those spiritually gifted people and those prophets are speaking in the first century church, test them. That's point one. Test them. Test what you hear. Don't just accept it even if a gifted man is teaching it, even if a gifted believer is teaching it, you have a personal responsibility to test all things. How do you do that? Can you imagine what I'm going to say next? How do you test teaching? There's a book written about that. You know what the name of the book is? Bible. Bible. That means you got to know. You got to know, not the pastor. You got to know, not the preacher. You got to know, not the teacher. You have got to know the Word of God so you can test everything that comes out of a preacher's mouth. The Bible says that the Bereans in the book of Acts were more fair minded than those at Thessalonica in that they received the Word with all readiness, and search the scripture daily to find out whether those things be so. You need to be searching the scripture daily so that you can know when you hear a false teacher. That means when you're in your car all by yourself, listening to a Christian radio station, and some preacher comes on, You need to do what? Testing. Testing. 
if you're going to the Lindley Church and the pastor is in the pulpit, you're to do what? Testing. Testing. Have I not told you, you don't have to believe anything I say unless I show it to you in the book? You are to testing, and that goes for me and every other teacher you ever hear. All right, so you test it. What you're going to find is some things are good and some things are bad. So that leads to the next two points. You're to hold fast that which is good. If you find truth in what is said, then don't just approve it or applaud it. Hold it fast. And that in the Greek text is in the present tense. Keep on holding it. Find out what you believe based on the word of God and hold on to it. And the third, well, I got through these three points real fast, didn't I? Wow. The third point is, but you abstain. You test, you hold, and you abstain. Now, what do you abstain from? I got saved when the only translation everybody used was the King James. And there was only one other out there that anybody paid attention to. It was Revised Standard and no Bible-believing person would go anywhere near it. So I grew up on the King James. And this verse used to give me fits. Uh-huh. The King James says, abstain from all appearance of evil. Have you ever heard anybody preach on that? And you're to abstain from all appearance of evil? I decided that the only way you could do that was to stay in bed all day. <laughs> How in the world do you abstain from all appearance of evil? And then... Uh, I mean, surely somebody's going to find something wrong with what you do. Well, the, the Greek text doesn't say that. The Greek text says abstain from all, well, I'm using the New King James translation. Look at it. Abstain from every form of evil. The point is that when you listen to a teacher, test what he says, then hold fast to what's the truth and abstain from all forms of evil. Don't listen to that. Don't hold on to that. In real short, sweet sentence, discern what is being taught and act accordingly. One of your responsibilities as a Christian is to check out everything by the word of God. Amen? Amen. So it's your responsibility to find out whether or not what I'm teaching is according to the scripture. That's your homework. So going to church, you get homework, right? You should. Daily, 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 they searched the scriptures. Years ago, I heard a Bible teacher that absolutely had a brilliant mind and lived a godly life. He could read Greek and Hebrew fluently. There was one of my professors. He actually had a book bound, and the first part of it was the Hebrew text, no English translation, just Hebrew. The second part of it was a Greek text, no English translation, And that's what he carried around as a Bible. Nobody questioned his scholarship or his godliness, I might say. He read, as I mentioned, both Hebrew and Greek fluently. 
and as most could read English. And he studied the scriptures daily for years and years and years. Those who knew him and heard him loved him and respected him. If there was ever a Bible teacher one could trust, surely it was this godly man. And I remember sitting in his church one day and hearing him say, and I'm going to quote him, don't take my word for it. Check it out in the word of God. I remember him praying one day, Lord, where there is chaff, uh, there is chaff and there is wheat in what I have said. May you forget the chaff and may the wheat produce a bumper crop. So, listen to teachers that believe the Bible, but test them. And take out the wheat, and may it grow to a bumper crop. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us good, godly teachers. But Lord, thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit and the spirit of discernment so that we can test all things by your word. May, Father, you teach us that, indelibly impress it upon us, and may we practice it. In Jesus' name, amen.